This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by Roadmap Writers. Roadmap Writers is a screenwriting education and training platform for writers looking for a guided path to success. Programs are hosted by working industry executives and are designed to empower writers with actionable tools and insights to elevate their craft and cultivate their industry relationships. Since 2016, Roadmap has helped more than 84 writers sign to representation and countless others get staffed, optioned, or sell their script. To learn more, visit roadmapwriters.com and use the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word, to save $15. Roadmap Writers, the road to your screenwriting success starts here. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're talking about your mindset as a TV writer and experiences in the writer's room with two very special guests. Yeah, we're joined by Roche Jeffrey, who has written on Smilf, 90210, and Woke, and has directed the short films Suitable and Mr. Talented. And also April Shi, who has written for You're the Worst, Mrs. America, Undone, and Evil, and is currently developing a cable series for ABC Signature. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you for having having us. Of course. Very excited. Yes. The hype is real. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks for being here. And uh, let's get started. To set things up for our listeners, we actually saw each other at uh, the Austin Festival the other week. We were talking about uh, you two coming on the podcast. And one of the things that we talked about was sort of the idea of the writer's mindset. And we actually did an episode on that uh, PT-17. What was uh, fascinating to me was we talked about how by working on yourself, how that correlated with a certain level of success that you found in your careers uh, after that. So I'm curious, just your thoughts on the writer's mindset and how you worked on that. April and I are in a writer's group uh, together, but our group is kind of untraditional because we don't really do a lot of writing together or like exchanging material. It's more so kind of like a really fun uh, support group. And yeah, and we were always encouraging each other and uh, guiding each other along our writing journey. And I think for us, it's been very clear that success is in direct relationship with how you kind of feel emotionally and how you, you know, manifest certain things in your life. Yeah. And we also, uh, in this group, uh, set intentions together, which I think is really huge. And we actually meet up on a regular basis and check in with each other on what our intentions are writing wise and personal wise, and make sure we're kind of on the right track and stuff. Yeah. And I think really a lot of attention is paid to having business savvy or mastering the craft. But all of that to me is for not, if you're not really in spiritual alignment, I think that's true for any industry. You know, if you don't really believe in yourself, then yeah, all that stuff is great. Like knowing how to write and knowing how to network is wonderful. But if you don't have confidence, if you don't actually believe that these things can happen, then they won't. And how do you think having the wrong mindset can kind of impact your work and your opportunities? I think like having limited beliefs, which we all have to an extent, and those might have come from childhood programming, you know, things we've heard from our parents or whatever about like, oh, this can't happen. Or even even things that we've maybe heard on other people's podcasts, for example, (laughs) like there's always these rules and guidelines that you're, you're supposed to follow when you're kind of making your way into the industry. And some of that advice is really good, but some of it can be limiting because you're like, oh, well, if I don't follow these rules, then maybe it won't happen for me. But I think it's about dismantling some of these limiting beliefs. So you really can kind of progress in your own journey and not try to 
follow someone else's. Yeah, I think that if you walk into, say, for instance, a showrunner's meeting to get a job and you walk into that space feeling inferior, feeling like you have some sort of imposter syndrome or not being confident in who you are, you're probably not going to get the job. Like, you know, that's just like fundamental. And um, as artists, I think we in particular struggle more with kind of the highs and lows and the ebbs and flows Mm -hmm. um, because we're really sensitive and we're really plugged in in a way that a lot of other people may not be. And it's important to kind of keep those things in check and to find that emotional balance. I think to Roche's point about walking into a room, I think it's about deservingness and knowing your self-worth. And I think that's really hard if you haven't really looked at yourself at all. And I think it's also hard when you might be coming from a space where you're feeling like, oh, I should take any breadcrumb or I'm lucky for any opportunity. But in reality, it's about realizing your own worth and what we bring to the table as writers and artists is huge. And the industry really can't operate without us. Yeah, I mean, and not to get too ahead of ourselves, but like I even see my peers who are working and successful in some in many ways, they'll sometimes struggle with maneuvering and and asking for what they want and they operate from a place of, you know, maybe I don't deserve this or uh, maybe I'm not ready for this. And when you're operating from that space, you're never going to really reach your full potential because you're always kind of waiting for people to hand you opportunities because you don't necessarily think you deserve to go out and get the things you actually really want. It's having the ability to essentially say no when you feel you don't necessarily uh, deserve the bad opportunity. Without having that leverage, without the ability to say no, then you don't have that leverage. Now, you brought up uh, imposter syndrome. Obviously, that's something that everybody, I feel like, suffers through, especially in the room. How do you combat that as uh, creatives? The thing that I've learned is that most people don't know what they're doing. <laughs> like, And when you realize that, it makes navigating the business a lot easier. Like, I've worked with showrunners. I've worked with people who are higher, you know, ranked writers. And up close and personal, you realize, oh, they're just people who are, you know, smart or savvy enough to be in the positions that they're in. But they're not necessarily better than you. And it's not also like an issue of comparison. Like you don't always have to be thinking about like who's better or, uh, you know, who can write this a cold open, you know, better than me. It's like, no, just, you know, move into these, to these different spaces, knowing that you are capable. And if you're not at this moment, you have the capacity to become capable of doing whatever it is you're supposed to be doing. I think it's like also helpful to know that so many other writers feel the same way you might when you have that imposter syndrome. I mean, every single time I have to write a script, like for a show or whatever, I'm like, do I even remember how to write? (laughs) Uh, uh, Somehow I tricked everyone into hiring me and now I really have to turn in a script. But somehow, you know, you just kind of, like Roche said, reach back into yourself and just do the work and the work gets done. And everybody kind of has this feeling from time to time. I mean, I've shared this feeling with other people. I'm like, oh, like, do I even know how to write a script? They're like, we feel the same way every single time. And they're like way more experienced writers than I am. People with Emmys, (laughs) you know, will think that they aren't good enough or, you know, that they don't deserve to be even in the business. And I think you just have to remember that. um, And sometimes I also think it's okay to feel inferior or feel a sense of imposter syndrome and just know that that's it's false. Like you feel it. And then you're like, you know what? Check yourself. This is all false and keep it moving like you're gonna have those moments where it flares up i think it actually can be a very good motivator to 
continue growing as well as an artist. It's like using that imposter syndrome as a positive and being like, you know what, I'm going to keep looking at myself, keep doing the work, keep expanding my craft, you know, um, and just trying to stay ahead of the game, basically. If you wrote like one script and you got staffed off of it and you just sat there on your laurels and thought, yeah, I don't need to do anything else. I don't need to be any better. I'm, I'm pretty great at what I do. You're not ever going to grow as a person. So in a way, like you said, the imposter syndrome motivates you to always be better and always work on yourself. You could sometimes take like a negative em- emotions and kind of reverse engineer it <laughs> and use it as a, a tool of empowerment. It also allows you as a writer to be more malleable to notes, uh, especially creatively speaking. A lot of people, especially Especially newer writers, I feel like reject notes, but that always comes down in my mind to ego. It's like, oh my God, I crafted this amazing piece of writing. How dare you criticize what what I wrote? When in fact, the usually note, I mean, obviously there's always bad notes, but more times than not, when someone uh, criticizes your work or analyzes it, it's more in, from the perspective of wanting to help you and build that, that piece of writing. Imposter syndrome, I feel like can also help in that capacity. Yeah, I think it's really important to stay humble and also have a growth mentality. You know, I think that if you approach this business, like I'm the best thing ever and I'm don't need any assistance in, you know, getting better or, you know, formulating my material. I think that's when you, you'll see that there are people who peak really early and then you don't really see much from them or they have one or two good projects. And it's like, what happened to the other 17 projects? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times it's because they buy into their own, you know, hype. And I think it's important to, on a spiritual level, to continue to stay um, hungry and humble and willing to hear other people's opinions. Where I think to your point about the growth mindset, it's huge because like the fixed mindset thing is I'm just super talented naturally, so I don't have to keep working. And then other people are not as good as me because they're not as naturally talented. And it's that belief that nobody can kind of grow at their craft and stuff like that. And I do think that's super limiting. And I think talent can get you so far, but if you don't continue growing and working, you're going to stagnate, you know? Right. It's a bit like the difference between someone who believes they're an artist as opposed to a craftsperson who constantly wants to improve themselves as opposed to some uh, sort of a muse thing that inhabits them mm. in some capacity. Yeah. I love the whole growth fixed mindset thing because it also helps distance you from that ego element. Like you were saying earlier, Alex, if you have this growth mindset, it's kind of like, you know, if you have done something that's not great, then that is something that you did in the past. It doesn't mean it's something you're going to do in the future. If you're in the fixed mindset, you believe you're kind of inhabiting that and you're like, I am bad and I can't get better. Mm-hmm. Are there any particular kind of like tools or strategies or thought exercises that you use when you are feeling that imposter syndrome or self-doubt or some way to kind of motivate you and push you through that? I think what I mentioned earlier is that, you know, our writers group is kind of a support group. And I think having people you can check in with and uh, share your feelings and have them beat some sense into you without violence, I think is really key. And for me, like every Sunday I go hiking with one of the members of our writers group and it's my way to kind of vent and talk about what's going on in my life and in my career. And she can also, you know, tell me when I'm about to jump off a cliff, like, no, this is actually you being crazy and you need to relax a little bit. And I think sometimes you need to be able to share. There's nothing wrong with sharing your insecurities. Um, and that's way more helpful than keeping those things to yourself. And I think having that community that we are so lucky to have where we can basically send out like a bat signal of, oh my God, like I need everybody right now who can meet up for a happy hour 
either for a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's important to have a community to be able to bounce these ideas off of and these feelings off of. And to Roche's, what she just said about our group, we're on a text chain and we can immediately say something like, oh, wow, I'm feeling this way. And immediately we'll get like five people responding, whether we're crazy or not crazy. Mm -hmm. And I think it's nice to be able to step outside of yourself. And then obviously being on the chain, I see other members of the group post stuff like that. And when it's them, you see it so clearly. You're like, you're being ridiculous. You're so talented, you know? And so I think it's it's nice to be able to have um, an outside perspective. Right. It also makes you, I feel like, a healthier writer in the writer's room because a lot of the time, the writer's rooms are about sharing those personal experiences. So if you are used to being someone who keeps things to themselves, uh, you will be a less valuable member of the room when it's time for you to uh, pitch ideas or stories that come from your own personal experiences. So I definitely concur that sharing uh, your feelings is like an important part of our life as writers. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even on like a personal level, and this may be a personal question, but do you avail yourselves of sort of like, you know, therapy and then working through that stuff with a professional to kind of, you know, go through those things in your life and your writing and that sort of stuff? I feel like my therapist is like a part of my team. <laughs> like, it's like manager, agent, lawyer, therapist, you kind of need, um, that check-in because what we do is really rigorous like emotionally as writers we're excavating on a regular basis a lot of emotional like issues and um working through them all the time and i think in addition to having a good support network of friends and peers and you know romantic partnerships or whatever i think it's also really important to have an objective professional who you can you can share, you know, what you're going through with. And I find that most writers I know actually, you know, are in therapy, truthfully, in some form or another. Um, I think it's it's definitely very helpful. I've been trying to find a therapist to go to for the last couple of years, and I've been so busy that it's hard for me to carve out time. So I do a lot of self-work. So I do a lot of journaling and reflection that way. I have friends who I will actually talk stuff out with, and we look at, like, triggers, and we look at things like that, shadow work, etc. I mean, I read lots of books and listen to lots of podcasts about self-work. So I do find that that's really important. And I have regular yoga and meditation practice, which I find very, very important to my mental health and to the way that we approach this industry. Yeah, I think it's important to break down that stigma around mental health and about mm -hmm. seeking help and therapy. And yeah, just even doing your own work with mindfulness and, and meditation and all that kind of stuff can be so helpful. Now, let's say you are either new in LA or you're an up-and-coming writer. How do you find that community and that support group? I think you have to be kind of fearless about going out and meeting people. And not only meeting people, but connecting with them in a real way. I think a lot of times people will go to networking events and they'll say, hey, nice meeting you. Like, we connected. Never speak to you again. And I think that's not really... Uh, worthwhile. Like, I think if you're going to, you know, go out there, you should really make an effort to actually connect with people and go to lunch and go to coffee. And, and, um, it's really that to me, that simple. I mean, it's showing up to these panels, to these events, to these screenings. And then when you connect with somebody actually making an effort to, you know, stay in touch. Yeah. I think it, networking with a capital N is like such a disgusting <laughs> thing. <laughs> and, and I've always really 
been turned off by it. And for me, what I realized to what Roche is saying about connection, the real connection, I, I value more depth of a relationship versus quantity of people that I know in this town or something. So I do think it's about cultivating genuine, genuine friendships um, from the beginning. And if you're like having a hard time going out and meeting strangers, like take a class, take a workshop. I mean, I actually met Roche through a friend Jimmy, who's also in our writers group, because we took a class together, you know, and Felicia Sam was in that class with us. So th- there are other ways of meeting people rather than just going to mixers and stuff, because that can be very intimidating, especially when everyone around you is being like super thirsty. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's like awkward, you know? Yeah. And then also the, the, I've heard this a lot lately and it's true. It's like, you know, a lot of times when you go to panels, people are always lining up to speak to the people who are speaking on the panels. And those people already have their friends. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> I, I think it's important to like look to the people who are sitting next to you and say, hey, you know, you know, what are you doing? What are we trying to do together? And I, and to April's point, I think it's about genuine connection because there are a lot of people I meet at different events and I don't like them and I don't have to like, and they probably don't like me. Like we don't have to like create false connections. Like you should, I think network with a capital N (laughs) with people you actually enjoy. And I don't think it's actually networking at that point. It's really just connecting and, and finding common ground and being friends. And then things can come from that. Yeah. I think it's a great point. And I think we touched on something similar on the panel with Austin film festival. It might've even been you who mentioned in April in terms of that depth of relationships, not just socially, but also professionally with executives and producers and people like that, instead of kind of like blasting your stuff out to 50 different coordinators at every possible network, you know, actually building the, those relationships with a couple of key people who are going to champion you and put you on shows and things like that. Right. So that idea, I feel like it goes back to always the, the ego in a way of uh, those people that network with a capital N it's all about, uh, Hey, here's my business card. What can you do for me? As opposed to let me be there for you. Let me uh, listen to you. Let me hear, you know, your struggles. What are you going through as a person? Let's connect on an emotional level, essentially, which I, you know, may sound uh, a little bit trite, but it is true that usually the people that I've had the most success with quote unquote networking with were people who are actual friends of mine now, people who we went out for drinks and we actually bonded on an emotional, personal basis. You talk about your hobbies and your interests and you go and do stuff that has nothing to do with the industry, things like that. So when you are interacting with other writers, whether socially, networking or in the room, can you kind of tell when someone has the right kind of positive mindset versus more of a negative or or desperate mindset? Oh, I'm very like plugged into energy. You can just feel like, you know, we all know in this business, there are people who think they're better than everybody else. There are people who are so thirsty that you want to give them a bottle of water the minute you meet them. Like (laughs) there's, there are all these different personalities and yeah, the energy you put out into the world is so important because especially if you're talking about navigating this business as a writer, particularly in a writer's room, people don't want to work every day with people who make them uncomfortable. You know, you want to be in a space that feels safe and that the person who you're working with isn't crazy, isn't, you know, over the top, like all that kind of energy is something that can be kind of a repellent to people. And I think that really starts off with, you know, how these people feel about themselves at their core. And that's why I like that, uh, that self-work is so important so that you're not projecting um, all of your kind of issues the minute you meet somebody. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely am very tuned into energy as well. And I don't think I necessarily always was. And I think 
as I started to get my get to know myself better, I started being able to tune into how I felt around certain people or how like you could literally feel a heavy darkness when someone is that kind of negative energy in the room. Um, and I've really chosen to kind of surround myself with uh, lighter energies, you know, people that do have this kind of expansive feeling. Um, and I made it actually an intention to, I set an intention saying, I want to be only working in rooms with people that are this kind of generous energetic spirit that like Roche and I, you know, have worked very hard to kind of cultivate. And yeah, I've been very fortunate to work with mostly just bright people. And my rooms have been amazing because I think I walk into a room and I'm like, oh, like, no, I don't want to be in here. Or yes, like this feels warm and nice. I want to be in here. Yeah. And I mean, I say I'm in full agreement with that. And for me too, on a personal level, it's something that I'm working on too. Like I sometimes can go into this pessimistic, negative place. And so I, I want to make sure that I'm not putting that energy out. And so I try my best to like counterbalance some of the, the negativity in the way that I approach certain things. And it's some, you know, it, the thing is, it's not always going to be perfect. We're all growing and you just have to be cognizant of it. Well, to that idea, how do you strategize or handle yourself when maybe you're having an off day, but you still got to go into work, you still got to be present in the writer's room? How do you handle that? Well, I'd like to think I handle it well, but sometimes I don't. <laughs> if I'm being completely honest, there are days where it's dark. <laughs> I'm in a dark place and I retreat a little bit. And that's okay too, because we're human. And writer's rooms are really distinctive spaces because I think there are very few jobs that you can think of where you are literally on for eight to 12 to 16 hours a day, where you're surrounded by other people. You can't you know, sit in your office and watch the color purple, like you or get out and read Jezebel articles. Like you're literally engaged with people all the time. And I think that it's okay to sometimes have those moments where you're like, you know what, I'm having an off day. Um, yeah. I think also doing your self work and having those practices on a regular basis helps you to identify like when you are feeling off, you can give yourself a couple steps that you know that you can go back to to kind of get yourself in the right mindset. Even if you are still like, I'm still going to be off today. It's like, okay, maybe I'll like meditate for five minutes before I go into the office and tips for staying present. Like, you know what? I'm not on right now. I'm just going to just listen. Like, that's all I'm going to do is just actually listen. And next thing you know, I'm dropped in and present. And, you know, I think that big magic kind of takes care of itself after a certain point. But I think it's just having those strategies to basically drop back in. Right. It's true that I feel like people have a limited uh, ability to be creatively. Nobody can be on 24 hours a day every day. So managing that time, that mental space is very important. Now, Roche, I remember in your AFF panel, you mentioned the idea of, oh, I'm going to be present and pitching things earlier in the day. And then later in the day, I'm going to be more listening. Mm -hmm. uh, what are your thoughts on sort of those strategies in the room to be managing that mental uh, headspace? I think that to me is the way I survive the, the creative creative drain of the, the writer's room is like knowing that I go in the morning, I'm best in the morning. I could give all my energy. And then in the afternoon, it's when I need to like kind of have some reserve and really allow myself to take in what's going on and also preserve my emotional self because it can be very, very draining. And, um, and I think that's okay. Everybody works differently. And, you know, there are people who are on the entire time when they're in the room, but I know that if I did that, I would be in a room for like a month and burn out. Um, so yeah, sometimes you have to put 
the pedal to the metal and sometimes you just have to put the brakes on and and that's okay yeah i think knowing your tendencies and what your body needs uh and what your mind needs to create and be the kind of most uh effective way it can um is really helpful like i realized through working on a couple of jobs that if i eat like a really heavy lunch i'm done for the afternoon it's just gone so now i and it's very tempting to order whatever you want when literally the writer's PA is like, here's a menu of amazing stuff you can order from. I just eat soup every day for lunch now. I've become like a soup lady at work. <laughs> I take a walk to the coffee shop and order myself a quad shot uh, latte before the afternoon because I'm like, I, that's how I don't fall asleep in, in the afternoon. And, and still it's even hard. That's but funny. I need to go for the walk. I need my coffee and I need to not eat a heavy lunch. I'm yeah. the salmon guy, so I can definitely relate to your struggles. <laughs> When you're not in the room, how do you go about kind of maintaining that routine of, of self-care and self-awareness? I think for me, I've my general rule is like Sundays, I try not to do anything work-related. And I think that's been really helpful for me. And so that is the same when I'm on hiatus. I also try to have a routine on hiatus. I think that's the best thing you could do is have a routine. Because I think what can easily happen is you go on hiatus and you're just doing whatever you want to do. And then you feel miserable because you're doing whatever you want to do. So I think, you know, at least saying, hey, I wake up at 9 a.m. I go to the gym. By 11, I'm writing or doing whatever businessy thing that I need to do. And three, I can do whatever I want, you know. But having a routine in and of itself is going to preserve a lot of your emotional life because you'll slip and slide. I think if you don't, I'm actually kind of the the opposite. Like I find that on hiatus, I'm way more in my self care routines and way more kind of. In doing the self-work and then when I'm in a room I kind of let some of it drop off because I'm so busy and I actually have to force myself to carve out time and and unfortunately a lot of the time when I'm in the room I'm like oh man I haven't journaled in a week or whatever and th- my habits kind of fall off so I think it's t- what Roche is saying like establishing um, a routine super important and when you're in the room if you can like wake up earlier and just have that extra hour in the morning to do whatever you need to do. But yeah, for me, hiatus is like the time where I'm only doing self-work. <laughs> <laughs> and what are your personal routines for self-care, both uh, in the rise room and also during hiatus? I think the mornings for me are great. I, most of the rooms I've been lucky enough to be a part of start at like 1030, which is really a great because you can really have two days like you know you have your morning which is i can get everything done i can go to the gym i could do whatever and then i can start work so to me the mornings are my time to like get my life in order and have that create that space for myself and i think it is really important to stay physical and physically active in the writer's room because you're spending so much time just sitting and it's deeply unhealthy so i think if you can find some time in the mornings to do something that's a great way to really practice self-care i think yeah ideally i wake up very early before my rooms usually start at 10 a.m unfortunately i've had some rooms that were kind of far away from me so i lost the morning hours to the commute but if i could wake up early journal for like 45 minutes or so with my morning coffee or whatever and try to not look at my device at all in that time and like roche is saying get some movement in there and these days it's hard for me to get like a full 
like yoga practice and in the morning so i'll even just turn on the music before i get in the shower and like dance for like 10 minutes just by myself in my room but just to get the blood flowing because we don't really move around at all the rest of the day and it's hard when you're taking meetings and you're like scheduling meetings around the room because then it cuts into your personal time so i think it's important to kind of know like these are my boundaries these are the times that i'm definitely not available to see other people yeah i think creating boundaries is really really helpful especially when i'm trying to get a project done sometimes I have to say I'm not going out with my friends for a month and you know that's just for me to preserve my mental and physical health sometimes I just need to say no and yeah I think saying no is also a huge part of self-care fundamentally I say no to projects I say no to people being willing to just step away I think is really helpful right I feel like it always comes back also to communication because if you're going to be saying no obviously there needs to be a reason or there needs to be a, a context for why you're saying no I love the idea of taking ownership of your own schedule of your own uh, language and uh and being present in that level and in terms of like maintaining your kind of creative energy as well especially when you're spending long hours in a room how do you you know how are you able to go home and in the evenings or the weekends or the mornings still be generating stuff for your own writing or your development or other projects well for me i try not to go home right away. So I usually go to like a co-working space and I work until I'm exhausted. But I mean, that's not always the best thing to do. But I mean, sometimes you just have to get things done. Because I know that if I step inside of my house, cross the threshold, I'm immediately falling asleep. Mm -hmm. So, or I'm watching something that I shouldn't be watching because I know I should be working. And uh, so for me, it's helpful to just go to another space that I know I can get work done. For me, I think, uh, and I have lots of projects going on all the time to the point where I feel like stretched very, very thin a lot of the time. And I find that I actually need to let myself have personal time that is not just like going from one job to then sitting at a desk to write and then going to work on another project and it's just go, go, go. Like I'm a lot more forgiving of myself these days if I need to take an afternoon and be like, you know what? I'm not going to do anything right now. <laughs> I'm going to go to this concert tonight instead of working. I think I'm very aware of when my deadlines are, and I trust myself that I will get them done, whether or not I need to wake up at four in the morning, like for two days in a row right before it's due or something, it will get done. And I trust myself now so I can give myself the leeway to kind of enjoy my life to an extent because I think it's so necessary. Yeah, I think you definitely should not be rigid with your schedule. Like, you know, I definitely have times where I'm like, I'm going to go out on Halloween. I went out. I had things to do. I had a script due that Friday, but I was like, I'm going to work until 10 and I'm going to go out and enjoy myself. Uh, so yeah, you should be able to have some level of flexibility too. And to your point, how important is it to have a physical space for work and play or home? Personally, I love to separate that space, that standing desk I have where I work from essentially the rest of the house, even when I'm at home. So I'm curious your thoughts on, on that idea for me that's key i believe that like each space in my life has to be designated for something so like i do not do work in my bedroom i don't do work in my home period i try to do work in like common spaces that are designated for for work so that one i don't kind of confuse what each uh, space is for my life like when i walk into my living room i don't want to see a desk because then i don't feel relaxed you know i don't i want when i walk into my bedroom that i know it's time to go to sleep um so for me that's really it's really helpful to create individual spaces 
I need to do that. <laughs> Just listening to you talk, I'm like, oh my God, I will rape from my bed. It's terrible. And it's not good. It's it's basically uh, like if it's like what I mentioned, I have to wake up at 4 a.m. to get something done. I'll wake up and just be like, oh, I'm writing from my bed. But I do prefer going out and leaving my house to work. I, I think cafes are great for me. I love being around the energy of other human spirits, you know? <laughs> and and um, I think Roche and I used to actually write together a lot at a coffee shop. We wouldn't even necessarily talk. It would just like sit close by and just feeling an energy around me was helpful. Um, I, I do need a better routine. I would love to carve out like a space in my house for just writing. But right now I'm just like so disorganized and it's whenever it needs to get done and wherever I happen to be. I mean, I've written from like the back of a car before. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Terrible. <laughs> I feel like that's a problem that I'm dealing with right now is that not having an actual space for writing. Like my fiance works from home. She's a composer. So we have a two bedroom apartment and one of the bedrooms is basically her studio and the other one is our bedroom. And so she has a space to work, but then when I'm home on hiatus or, or whatever happens to be on the weekends, I'm writing on the couch or I'm writing on my bed or whatever. And if she wants to come out and watch TV, then it's like, well, I'll go lamb the bed. Like I, it's it's it kind of feels like you're displaced and you're like, yeah. it's hard to focus that energy because when you're sitting on the couch, you're like associating that with watching TV and relaxing and entertainment. Mm-hmm. You're sitting in the bed, you associate that with sleeping and you get tired easier. It's it's really tough sometimes. It's really like a slippery slope, really, because you know, you're on the couch, you're working, but you're going to be like, ah, oh, maybe I'm going to watch an episode of uh, Great British Bake Off. And, uh, <laughs> next thing you know, you're already on season five of uh, some other show. So you touched on intentions before. I'd love to hear more about how that all kind of works, setting your intentions and working towards those. We kind of approach it in a very formal way. Like we do at the beginning of the year, we kind of set our intentions. I do a vision board. I do a digital vision board uh, that I create on PicMonkey. <laughs> I prefer that over like cutting up a bunch of magazines. It can get a little messy. Um, and I think it's really helpful for me like to say, this is what I want. And I'm very, it helps me to one, narrow in on like exactly what I'm uh, trying to work towards. Because I think that a lot of times we can have very ambiguous, like nebulous goals. And I don't think that's helpful. I think being able to say specifically what you would like and being flexible and open to it being manifested in a maybe slightly different way, I think is really important. So at the beginning of every year, I I try to sit down and like think about what I want the year or just my life moving forward to look like. And what's great is that I can look back at old vision boards and see that there are a lot of things that are still the same and some things that are different. And then I think I try to also check in like every so often throughout the year and and see where I am with those goals and create new ones. Yeah, I mean, I do a very similar process. Uh, Roche and I actually, in our group, we share these intentions with each other at the beginning of the year. And uh, it's it might sound very woo-woo, but we'll also like have... Uh, visualizations of each individual person's kind of goals and intentions. And it's kind of nice to hear that other people are kind of visualizing that for you as well. And I find that is like the best part of my year. We sit around and we literally just, you know, read our intentions out loud and be like, you know, I saw this for you too. This is so amazing. And to hear that from your colleagues is, is great. But yeah, I think knowing and having that vision for what you want your life and career to look like, and that comes down to energy as well. Like, what do you want your rooms to feel like? What do you want um, your career to look like in terms of like, spiritually, like not just like, oh, I want to achieve all these goals and like win all these awards. It's like, what kind of work do I want to create and why, you know? And and I think having that long-term vision and then being able to kind of back it into whatever you're doing now really helps with making sure every single thing you do in your life is in alignment with that larger vision and that larger spiritual 
quest, I guess. Yeah. I think it's it's also great to share those goals with other people because they can help you to stay on course, you know? And I think a lot of times people keep their dreams to themselves. And I think that's actually dangerous. I think dreams do better with light, you know, like the more exposure they have, the more other people around you know what you want to do, they can aid you, they can assist you in getting to where you want to go. So how do you deal with the issue of, I guess, sort of comparisons of people around you and other people's success and seeing that everyone's on this show and they just sold this and that and, and you know, that reflecting back on yourself and how you feel about yourself? That's probably my number one challenge, I think, for myself. Like, if I'm being honest, career-wise, my number one challenge, trust, I have many other challenges. But I think that what I've learned is that I have to sometimes step back from social media and disengage because it's the only way to kind of preserve my sanity. There is this feeling you'll get like, wow, look at this person. They are doing all this stuff. They're making all this money and they're so successful. And the reality is that everyone is on their own timeline. And if you are preoccupied with somebody else's timeline, you're not focused on the things that you need to be doing to get to where you need to go. And everything I think works together and comes together when it should for you. Like this year I've made um, a, a concerted effort to not really post on social media that much and to not really scroll through social media. It's not really healthy and it does nothing for me. And um, yeah, that's the only way I can like preserve my sanity. For me, I think it is acknowledging that everyone has their own journey and path. And if you don't get something that someone else got, it probably wasn't for you and it probably wasn't right for you the path, the, the the bigger spiritual vision that of your life that you wanted. And I think for me, it's like zoning into that idea has really helped me from really being kind of envious of other people because I'm just like, that is great and shiny for them, but that has nothing to do with what I'm doing. And what my purpose for being here is a very specific thing that I'm very aware of now because of all the work that I've been doing and introspection and stuff. So it almost doesn't, even register. And I know that sounds like crazy, but I, I guess I don't really go on social media and look yes. at people posting stuff mm -hmm. either. So maybe that's why I'm also unaware. But <laughs> in our little group, anytime anyone shares a success, I'm just as happy for them as I would be if it happened to me. Mm -hmm. And it has made my life so much more joyous to be able to celebrate my friends' successes as my own. And I'd rather live my life this way than being like, uh. Yeah, I petty. think that's, that's yeah. where you want to get to, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, also, too, it can be very limiting, right? I remember there was a writer um, who we had a similar biography, similar things that we were interested in, and similar like uh, relationships, right, with different people in the industry. And I remember once I went on her IDB uh, like four years ago, and I was like, oh my gosh, she has an agent. And <laughs> she had like an agent at what now is like really considered like a mid level agency. And she had like a job writing and I was so jealous of her. And three or four years later, I was scrolling through Instagram and I saw her picture and I was like, oh, I wonder what she's up to now. And her career is great and it's wonderful. But I had also done just as much and been signed to a great agency and created, you know, meaningful work just like her. And so if I had spent all this time like worrying about what this person was doing, then I wouldn't be able to be doing the things that I'm doing. Like essentially we caught up, like we're all doing great work. I think if you're 
you know, worried about what somebody else is doing and you think like they're at the apex, you could be doing something even better and even greater. Like not that it's a competition, but you could be doing something even better for yourself and you're worried about what Sally Joe or whatever is doing. I think there is a shift in perspective that needs to happen sometimes when you're, you know, you we, we are coming up together and in some ways we are competing against each other, mm-hmm. but I think the shift comes from really feeling like, you know what, there's actually enough to go around for everyone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just because you didn't get that job and someone else did doesn't mean that you're not going to get another one. And I think I, for me, I don't know when the shift happened, but I, okay, I'll tell a little anecdote. So I interviewed for the CBS fellowship in 2014 and didn't get it. And I was just like so mad. And then anytime, you know, after that, anybody would get a fellowship, I would just beat myself up or be like, what's wrong with me? Like, you know, com- started comparing myself, like, how come they got it, not me and stuff like this. And then later on, I did a bunch of self work and then ended up doing the fellowship like three or four years later. And I realized that if I hadn't had that time to do that self work, I wouldn't know who I was as a writer, I would have gone into the program and been kind of like, down to shape myself into any kind of writer they wanted to make me into. And I don't think I would have excelled. And those years were what I needed to kind of step into myself and step into my voice. And because of that, I think a lot of people probably look at me now and saw, oh my God, you accelerated so quickly. But I'm like, no, no, no. That came with lots of years of nothing happening, <laughs> you know, but I think it's like, it all happens when it should. And, you know, if you need that time to grow, you need that time to grow. Absolutely. And I feel like a lot of people, obviously, we always talk about work on your writing, work on your specs, work on your samples, but there's so little conversation about working on yourself as a person. Part of it is also the branding aspect, but a lot of it is projection in a way and, and sort of the serpent that eats its own tail of, okay, if I'm if I'm this person, then I can actually be this person, fake it till you make it kind of a thing. So I, I really appreciate what you're saying in terms of evaluating yourself as a person and working on yourself, especially during those gap years when you're on hiatus and you feel like a failure because you're not having this next job and you're waiting and waiting, but you can use that time to reassess who you are as a person, as a creative, the values you stand for, and the kind of content you want to put out there. And social media makes it really hard with comparison too, because you're only seeing the best side of everyone. You're not seeing all of the the struggles and the obstacles that they've had along the way to reach that. You're not seeing the three failed pilots they've had. You're not seeing the two years they spent completely unemployed and broke to get to that place and all that kind of thing as well. So, you know, everyone's going through their own thing. And, you know, I, I love that, you know, reframing it, like you're saying, in terms of being happy for other people's success and that they succeeded and that their success doesn't take away from yours or your ability to succeed right. either. And arguably will only help you, especially if you are in friendly terms with them, if it's about the community and you're building bridges and conversing with them on an emotional, personal level, it behooves you to really help them and then and push them further because it's only going to help you out in the long run. Uh, so moving on to our next little topic of discussion, both of you have had sort of a wide range of experiences in writers' rooms, some positive, some negative. And we just wanted to kind of, I guess, discuss a little bit about that and you know, how everything unfolds when perhaps it isn't the most productive room situation. Ooh, how everything unfolds. Um, (laughs) I mean, I think every bad room is different. (laughs) And so, you know, for me, I think what I've had to come to terms with is that, you know, every room is not going to be great. And in my opinion, you have to go into every experience with an objective. And that objective is not always going to be rooted in like whether or not it's a good experience. You know, the objective may be like, I just want to write a great script. 
I want to connect with the, this writer who's in the room, who I think could be a great mentor or collaborator. You know, I want to learn more about writing comedy. I think you just have to find what can I get out of this experience that's going to make the experience worthwhile because rooms are, a lot of them are crazy. It's a 50, 50 shot, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you just have to kind of ground yourself in order to maintain your sanity. I've been very, very fortunate to be in pretty incredible rooms. And just from hearing stories about other rooms, I'm like, oh, my God, it seems like I'm dodging bullets left and right every time I get staff on a show that has a great room. But I do think, to Roche's point, like knowing why you want to be in this room really helps you kind of maintain your sanity. Because even with the best rooms, when you're weak, you know, 15 out of 20 and it looks like the show is just like, is this even good? Like, I can't see through the weeds. You need a guiding light to remind you like why you love to be there in the first place, even if the people there are amazing, you know? So I think knowing like, okay, yes, I'm in this room because I responded to the pilot and I loved it and it resonated so much and I want to tell the story. Or you're like, you know, I want to be mentored by this amazing showrunner who I really respect uh, on this level and now I'm just focusing on like all the things I feel like I can take away from this room, you know, in terms of show running. Well, to that idea, let's say you worked on yourself, you're all about love and light and you have your samples, you get staffed in this amazing room and turns out it's basically a bunch of a-holes and it's a really terrible environment. How do you self-preserve? How do you maintain your sanity essentially in this uh, hostile environment? Yeah, for me, what I always remember is like, one, this contract is not going to last forever. <laughs> and two, back to what, you know, uh, we were saying earlier about support and having a strong network of friends and people that you can call on, whether it's a mentor or it's your peers, you know, being able to know that like once a week in order for me to survive, I have to have a happy hour with the people I actually enjoy spending my time with. And to know that it's a safe space yeah. to vent and stuff if you need to. I, I think like it is dangerous to like be talking crap about everyone to everyone else, <laughs> but knowing who you can trust and knowing that, okay, listen, this is a vent session. This does, is not me being like a crazy person. It's me being like, I need to do this. Otherwise, I will blow up in the room at some point. Yeah. And then sometimes, you know, depending on the room politics, you may have an ally or two. You have to be very careful about who you uh, become allies with because sometimes, you know, the politics can be messy. But, you know, you can also look for the person in the room who you think is also sane and, you know, <laughs> connect with them. I mean, sometimes that's what you need is a life preserve in the this actual room. And what do you do when there is conflict in the room, whether personal or creative between you and another writer? I avoid it. Um, <laughs> I mean, truthfully, if there's conflict between me and another writer, it, you have to really look at the politics of it all. Like, you know, is this writer ranked higher than me? Are they ranked lower than me? Or is this writer really good friends with the person in charge who's also crazy? Like, you know, I, every situation is so unique and um, you really do have to, you know, think about, uh, in almost every situation, the first thing you want to do is have a conversation. That's the first thing you'd love to be able to do. But sometimes that's just not practical. And, you know, being able to use your emotional intelligence to figure out, like, is this somebody who I can really have a conversation with and it'll be meaningful and it'll move this situation along? Or is this somebody, if I had a conversation with them, it would create even more issues. But I would say a conversation is always key. 
And as I mentioned, like, I haven't really been any real situations of major conflict, but that isn't to say that the rooms haven't had tensions and, and like, rough moments. And in those scenarios, I actually, I mean, I try to be a person where I look around and I'm like, oh, maybe this person's not having the same experience I'm having. Maybe they're having a really tough time. Or maybe the showrunner was, like, really hard on them today for some weird reason. And I don't know why. And, I, you know, instead of turning a blind eye to that and be like, yes, I'm not in, I, I'm not, like in the crosshairs, I actually will go to this person and be like, hey, listen, like, how, you know, how are you doing? You know, and I, I try to be the person that creates a safe space for someone else if they do need to, like, vent or feel um, better about, you know, being able to kind of share, like, their grievances. But for the most part, I think it is just about identifying, like, what tensions might be happening and knowing, like, you know what? It might not be even me. It might mm -hmm. be... Honestly, showrunning is a stressful job. Making a show is a stressful job. All these other things could be like really informing why there might be tensions happening in the room. Right. Being empathetic is very important, especially, I mean, we are writers, we're writing people at the end of the day. So that's a, an important tool to have. And just to jump back on uh, what you were saying about conflict, another thing to keep in mind is that sometimes the winning move is not to play. If there's a conflict, especially if there's camps building and uh, two sides uh, going to war in a room, sometimes you can just like step back and not get sucked into the vortex of uh, these conflicts that aren't really creatively fulfilled you because you know you're there to create a show so maybe going back to why you were there in the first place going back to oh i'm here to create a show about these stories and these people maybe that's going to root you and uh, and help you move forward yeah i think staying on mission like again what is your goal in the room and focusing on that and and, and you know you don't want to clock it and clock out but sometimes on some jobs you kind of have to in order to survive it's like i'm clocking in i'm doing my job and i'm clocking out and i'm not taking any of this emotional baggage with me and it's easier to do that when you go in knowing i'm doing this job for the paycheck and honestly i'm not going to get involved with any of this other crap because i'm just here to keep my head down do my job and leave at the end of the day and feel like free <laughs> yeah cashing that check yeah <laughs> and uh in the kind of a worst case scenario where something escalates to a point where a line is crossed and, and something really needs to be done about it, uh, who can you kind of turn to at that point? Is it the other writers? Is it your reps, the showrunner, the studio, or the network? What's the kind of uh, avenue for that? I've been in many situations like that, to be honest. <laughs> I've been in two major situations, and I've, in both instances, the first person or people I turn to were my reps um, to give me, of course, advice about how to maneuver. And then they kind of handled um, the the issues, you know, because I also think, look, when we have reps, I try to give outsource as much as I can to them. So when things get nasty or tough, that's where they need to step up and like take care of things. So for me, it's usually my reps who are the first people I turn to. And then it's their job to kind of manage up you know, and figure out who to talk to and um, for me to navigate the situation. I have not yet been there, so <laughs> knock on wood. And how do you decide if it ever reaches a point where it's just completely untenable and you need to to quit or you need to no longer be in this place? How do you reach that decision and, and why? Well, I've quit a job before and I quit. Uh, I, I realized it was time for me to go because this wasn't going to give me anything. Like the experience was not going to um, illuminate anything. It wasn't going to 
edify me in any way. It wasn't going to create these new meaningful relationships that were worthwhile. There was nothing I was going to get out of it except for stress and it wasn't worth it. And I had grounds to leave and I knew I was still going to get paid if I left um, because I had grounds to leave. So, you know, I think when you see a situation is untenable and there's nothing you can really get from it, um, it's time to go. Like, why waste your time? In those kind of situations, do you ever worry about potential like repercussions to your career or reputation or things like that? Or is it more of a second thought? Always, right? I always worry about that. But then at the same time, I'm, I've gotten to a place where I realized that like, I know who I am. And I know that the politics of the business aren't necessarily a true to like who I am. And so, um, yeah, I, I also think a lot of times writers, this is anybody in this business, a lot of us operate from a place of fear constantly. Like, I'm never going to get another job if I say this or th- th- that's actually not true. And I think because we give power to all of those negative feelings and negative people, it allows for a lot of foolishness to run rampant in the business. And so for me, I had to take back my power. I also operate from a place where I'm like, yeah, I love writing. I love directing. I love performing. I love doing all these things in the entertainment business, but it doesn't define me. And frankly, I could do something else and make a living. You know, I think if we get so caught up in this business, a lot of us do, where it's like, this is it. And if I don't do this, I'll never be happy or I'll never be successful. It's like, no, this is a great career and we're privileged and lucky enough to make things up for a living. But there are other things that we can do to be successful. Like, yeah, putting too much weight on it, I think is dangerous. And what are the things you can do proactively when uh, you're taking a show or a meeting or you're about to be staffed outside of obviously vetting those people with friends of yours to make sure that you are in a, in a good work environment and uh, this is the right room for you? Um, For me, I feel like, like we talked about earlier, receiving energy is like really important being in there and just being like, is this person like good, uh, like energetically? Like, do I like being around them? Do I feel good right now? And obviously, it's hard to tell, you know, from one meeting. And that is why it's important to vet. Um, But I think being very kind of open and honest upfront is important. And for example, you know, in the current room that I'm in now, I was very, very busy when this job was offered to me. And I had to just be like, listen, I'm doing this project and this project. They are my priority. Um, You know, if you don't want to hire me, I understand, but I would love to work on the show. It's just these things kind of will take precedent. Um, And, you know, we had a conversation about it. We were very kind of open and upfront about what I needed to do when I would need to leave the room, et cetera, et cetera. And so there were no surprises. Now that the show's going, it has been that amazing kind of flexible job. I mean, he's been incredible, but we had this conversation up front. I don't think he would have been very happy if I'd showed up to the room and was like, just kidding, bait and switch. Now I have all this other stuff going on and um, you're going to have to let me go because, you know, my lawyer negotiated it or something. All right. It goes back to communication, sharing mm-hmm. uh, your position. Show and interviews, you're kind of trying to see if it's as good if, uh, a good fit for you as much as they're trying to see if you're a good fit for the room. Now, Arosha, in your AFF panel, you also mentioned that you are now in a position where you purposefully are only working on your own projects or things you're passionate about how do you approach that sort of transitioning from okay kind of like a work for hire situation almost to taking ownership of your career and and sort of your projects and really focusing on that i think that for me i had to make a calculation about okay yes would i like to chase every check and every opportunity or would i like to be in a position in a year or two where i'm i'm 
I'm the person who can walk into a space and something can get greenlit, right? That was that was the calculation. And it's a huge risk and it's a gamble. It could completely backfire on me. But for me, I, I, I recognize that I... It's kind of what I was saying earlier. I don't necessarily feel like I have to um, kind of build a career in the writer's room. I'm interested in telling stories. I have a certain number of stories that are probably in me and I want to tell those stories. And I, I that's why I'm in the business. And for me, I, I really started to double down on that because I recognized I wasn't always like the most invested in things that I was not creating. And I do my best work and I'm more efficient and I'm more passionate when it's something that I have conceived of and am really passionate about on every level. So um, I think for me, that was just the calculation. And I know that it, it has its risk and I don't think it's for everybody because I could probably make more money, but I think it's something that could pay off, you know, if it works out well. And the things that I'm actually producing are decent or good. The jury is out, but you know, I, 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 uh, I don't recommend it for everyone. I'll say that. I mean, I think I, I'm in a similar place as well, and not necessarily in terms of only doing projects that originate from me, because I certainly staff on other people's shows and love working on you know other projects. And the show I'm taking out right now was technically an open writing assignment, but I feel like I have set this intention to only do things that feel in alignment and are resonant to me in some deep way. And that it makes choosing a project to work on very easy. Like I just have to tune into myself and be uh, asking myself, honestly, do I actually love this project? Is it resonating to me on a deep spiritual level and not just some cool intellectual level? Like, Oh, that's a fun concept. Maybe I'll work on that. Um, and if it speaks to me emotionally and spiritually, then I'm like, cool, I'll do it. And for some reason, I've been able to kind of cultivate a body of work that, you know, looks pretty good on paper, but it's, it was all chosen because, you know, I actually felt in alignment with the projects. And I think that's exactly right. I think no matter where you kind of fall on the spectrum in terms of like how much of your work you want to be committing to or whatever, I think always knowing like, is this something that's in alignment with where I want to be and what I want to do is important. And the power again in saying no, um, and just remembering why you're in the business. Everybody has different goals. Um, and you just have to keep, you know, keep uh, reminding yourself of that. And, and to the back to the saying no as a topic of conversation, it's interesting because like we work so hard to even just try to break in. And so it seems crazy that we'd ever be in a spot where we'd have to turn stuff down or to literally say no, because it's like, that just isn't in alignment with me. It's like, I might actually have time to do it, but I don't feel like I resonate with it. One of my former bosses said it was hard enough uh, to get to a moment where you have to start saying no to things you don't want to do. And then it gets even harder when you have to start saying no to things you do want to do. And I think um, being able to do that comes from having a good sense of yourself and having a good sense of, you know what, I will have other projects coming down uh, my way. Um, I don't have to do everything right now. And for my sanity, I cannot say yes to everything. <laughs> um, and yeah, being able to have that kind of wherewithal to be like, you know what, I'm good. I, I don't need this crap right now. I'm going to, I'm going to go. It's about trusting yourself. Essentially. Yeah. yeah. Right. And I'm sure that ability to say no and set boundaries in your professional life helps when you have done that in your personal life, like we talked about earlier and worked on those skills.
All right, before we go, we have a few final questions. Number one, what are you watching on TV right now? Secession, I think, is a really, really great show. And uh, yeah, I love it. Ugh, I need to watch that. Everyone's been talking about it. And like, I've gotten so many spoilers from the writer's room because uh. they just all watch it except me. Um, I What am I watching right now? I can't even remember the last show I've watched. This is so embarrassing. I watched the preview for the Paul Rudd show. Ooh, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I want to watch that. So like, I have that queued up, but I've not actually watched it. The Netflix um, one where he plays himself yeah, living yeah. with himself. Yeah. It looks good. I haven't it's watched good. it, though, so yeah. I can't. Kind of the, the only reason to watch things is to not get spoiled on it now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Number two, do you have any final advice for TV writers, whether working or upcoming? We have more control over our careers than people sometimes want us to believe, like the industry wants us to believe, rather. And I think that uh, you can write yourself into the career that you want to have, and you can hustle your way into the career that you want to have. Um, and to to like, you should always remember that, like you are, you have way more control than you think you do. And uh, to add to that, I would say find your people and you have control over that too. Knowing, you know, the people that you keep in your life are the ones that you resonate with and get you and you get them. This includes friends. It includes reps. It includes all of it because you want to work with people that actually get you for you. And you're not just trying to like bend your skill set to match or, you know, bend your taste to like meet their whims basically. So I think being able to surround yourself with people that you are like, you know what? I genuinely like them and I don't need to deal with these people I don't like uh, makes your life so much easier. And lastly, you already touched uh, upon this earlier, but do you have any resources, be it apps, websites, anything you can think of that you use either for your own writing or when you're working on yourself? I use this app. It's not a writing app, but I use an app called Ananda. It's actually technically like a binaural beat meditation app, but it's a very simple interface and you can set like a timer and you can choose like whichever binaural beat you want to use. So say you're, you have a deadline, you're like, I got to, you know, get these pages done. There's like a focus and concentration one and you can set the timer for like 45 minutes and kind of do the Pomodoro technique that way where it naturally will ding when it's over and you're like, oh, I can take a break and then start it over. So it operates as both a timer and kind of a brain stimulator kind of thing. Yeah, I think the Freedom app uh, where you it, it can limit your access to the internet while you're working for different time periods that you can, you know, set. I think that's been um, super, super, super helpful. All right, well, before we go, don't forget that we are now on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Uh, you'll get exclusive content, opportunities, and merch, and we can keep producing a great show for you every week. So thanks to our listeners for tuning in, and thanks so much for joining us to our guests. And you can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 161. As always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. And where can our listeners find you guys on Twitter or the internet? Where do you if you want to be found. I am just at April She everywhere. I am a very complicated Instagram handle, but it's R-O-C-H-E-E. If you search for me, you said maybe you'll find me. <laughs> maybe. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Oh, next week will be a recording of our live table read event for one of our listeners' scripts, uh, Wildcats, from November 20. So tune in for that. It's going to be exceptional. Catch you guys then.